Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons, Robert, Matthew, Brenda, Garrett, Jeff, Paul, Joaquin, Tobias, Carol, Fernando, Justin, Matt, and Robert. Thanks to each one of you for helping make How Not to DM happen. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. Remember that 10% of my ad and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ plus youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information. And now onto this episode's guest announcement. Sarah Thompson, known as Mustangs Art on Twitter, is best known for the 5e combat wheelchair, an incredibly creative piece of game design made to make the world's greatest role-playing game more accessible. But that's far from their only contribution. Sarah has also done a ton of work on consulting and designing for other popular TTRPGs, focusing on accessibility and inclusion. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Sarah, also known as Mustangs Art on Twitter. I work advocating for better disability representation within tabletop games, and have also dabbled in a couple of video games and comics and things like that. So pretty much my work is that. Um, I've also done a few adventures and stuff writing for companies and yeah I pretty much do it freelance at the moment yeah and we'll dig into all of the different projects you've worked on because there are <laughs> many of them in a little yep. bit I'm really excited about that so how did you get into tabletop role-playing games initially um I had a really bad experience playing D&D fourth edition in high school with a group of all boys and I was the only femme person there played a female character and my character was pretty much degraded to always being the damsel in distress and I was like this sucks like this isn't fun is this what it's meant to be like and everyone's like yeah yeah that's like you know what it's meant to be like you know we save each other except I was the only one ever being saved and never did any like heroics really and I was like yeah no this game sucks I'm never playing it again and it kind of really put me off for a while and then when I got to sixth form, which in the UK is like your two years before you go to university. So I was about 17 at the time and a partner at the time was like, hey, do you want to play D&D 5th edition? Because it's very easy to pick up. It focuses more on collaborative storytelling. It's fun. Me and my friends play it. I'm an experienced DM. And I was like, um, I don't know, <laughs> really, because I was kind of tentative after the fourth edition experience. And they were like, oh, no, like I'll, I'll run a one shot for you, just you and me and I'll DM and, and we'll just run it. And I did that with just a quick character I rolled up and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like what it's meant to be like. And yeah, she was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's meant to be like that. Like it's meant to be fun. Then I got into my first real campaign, which was Curse of Strahd and kind of just fell in love with the game. <laughs> Have you talked to a lot of people who've had that similar experience or have, you know, have you heard that same story a lot where people have a bad experience because of what the other player's expectations are based on mm -hmm. their, the player's gender or, or the character's gender or stuff like that? When we went to university and we formed like a group, um, we mm -hmm. found that, yeah, people had had like bad experiences even with fifth edition. And it turned out it's because their DM had the mindset of it's the DM versus the players and, mm. you know, not really telling a cohesive story, more just kind of throwing monsters. And that's not what everybody wanted to play. Yeah, Like throwing monsters at people is fine. If you're doing like, you know, if everyone agrees and it's a dungeon crawler and people want to do that, like I fully understand, but they were kind of told it was meant to be like this story, but like there was no real story or direction and they kept getting railroaded anytime they wanted to do something else uh yeah so like our group kind of focused on like talking about what everybody wanted out of the session and building a whole campaign around that by using the pre-written campaigns with just a few different text flavors and you know skin yeah. changes basically 
What a concept, asking players what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm then, only laughing because yeah. it's a newbie mistake for sure to kind of try to railroad people. Or maybe they just don't know any better, right? You know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It can be a thing. You know, you get kind of caught up in the story that you as the DM have in your head. And it can be frustrating when the characters are like, I'm going to go talk to this random NPC that like you've not bothered naming. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and yes. a strike up a friendship, um, which can be, you know, really startling, especially if I found from a lot of my friends who first time DM'd and they said it's kind of startling when that happens. They said like from watching podcasts, they kind of expect it to be like, you know, critical role, which, you know, people have this expectation of like, there's this grand story and all the players are like, but you don't see what goes on behind the scenes where like, you know, they discuss ideas and where the story's going next, which is how the podcast stays kind of cohesive (laughs) and Matthew Mercer's hours of prep I'm Uh, sure and yeah you know anyway like he's a master dungeon master really (laughs) like no better words for it (laughs) yeah so Sarah have you ever run games for people and if so do you remember your first experience and kind of what that was like my first experience I dm'd with my university group I dm'd Curse of Strahd because that's my favorite fifth edition module. Like all of its problems aside, like it's my favorite. I love Gothic <laughs> horror and I I just, mm-hmm. yeah. Strahd's such a fun antagonist to play as. It was a lot of fun. And I even had that experience of like, oh, but the story is meant to be going in this direction. But, you know, they got distracted by a random Vistani woman who like had a funny name. And they were like, yeah, we want to be friends with her because she's got like a cool name. <laughs> I'm like, okay, now I need to like piece together a random character. And try and fit her into the story. So it was a lot of like learning that there are going to be curveballs like that and to not dodge them, but actually like catch them and then roll with it is like the best way I found the DMing style that like I've heard it referred to as is the yes and like say yes to it and then build something wild off it because it's just meant to be silly and fun. And you come up with some really good um, role play moments when people are allowed to really be their character and like do something very impulsive that maybe wouldn't fit the story, but like you can work it in and it comes up with like, you know, a lot of laughs and it was fun. It was a good learning curve. Yeah, it does sound like it. And it sounds like you picked up on a lot of things quickly too, but I still have to ask, uh, what do you feel like are some of the big mistakes you've made while running games? It could be from that particular game and it could be from games since then. Um, But yeah, what are some things that you've kind of run into that other people could learn from? Basically, the kind of don't try and fight against what the players want to do because that only ends up with railroading. And it's okay to like gently guide people back on track, which like you refer to as like herding cats most of the time. That's what D&D's <laughs> like. And it can be difficult to do it. But, you know, eventually, if you go with that kind of yes and attitude, like you can kind of just roll everything back around anyway pretty quick. You know, because the less time you spend actively fighting a player who wants to just do something different, it's time that, like, you could have just said yes and and then got them back to the story again. It's fine, like, if you want to be inspired by certain DMs, but don't let that be, like, what your whole story is, like, based on and what you base these NPCs on and and things like that. Because... Well, I really wanted to try DMing after watching Dice Camera Action, because I love Chris Perkins as a DM, amazing DM. Mm -hmm. And his version of Barovia and Strahd was like so much fun and interesting. But I kind of learned that it's okay to take inspiration, but not like one for one, like what the character types were for like Strahd and stuff. Like I found that my Strahd is is a lot more fun when he's really like uh, spiteful, petty. And I, I, I like going with that and like, there was a whole thing where one of the characters was actually taller than Strahd, so he started turning up in high heels to be taller than them um, <laughs> <laughs> so that he could be more imposing. Or he yeah. would always be on Bocephalus the Wonder Horse <laughs> so that like he was always taller. And like, you know, taking inspiration, like uh, I took the inspiration from Chris that he is like a serious character when he wants to be and he kind of falls into that Chris Perkins style strad but other than that like you know i started using you know what we do in the shadows as like a reference for vampires because i love that film and just realizing that you can kind of mash things together and see how they play out i had i can't remember the name of um 
basically uh, the guy who's one of Strahd's, um, you know, courtiers, lovers, I can't remember his name, but he lives at the castle and we made it that like, he doesn't love Strahd at all. Like he did, but then he realized, you know, Strahd's a bad guy and he, he just does stupid things all the time and like he ends up resenting this guy but can't leave because he's under, you know, his like spell thing that, you know, vampires spawn are because he was a vampire spawn. And uh, so basically, like, <laughs> the players found him in the, like, the tombs with Strahd's, like, other brides, his undead brides, and, like, they, they have, like, a We Hate Strahd club going on. And it ended up with the characters kind of bonding with that character, and eventually, like, he did, like, a, a kind of, like, full 180 and ended up betraying Strahd, like, and it was, like, this big, like, plot twist, because, like, everyone was like, oh, no, he's, like, Strahd's, like, support, basically, even if he doesn't like him. And then he was like, no, like, I'm going to sacrifice myself to, like, make sure the party win, which was a lot of fun and was, you know, very emotional for the players because they were like, oh, no, he's dead. Like, <laughs> super sad about it. <laughs> what a story arc for a character that otherwise wouldn't have had that. Yeah, that's really funny. Other than that, do you have any other kind of memories of really fun or interesting stuff that's happened uh, while you're playing games that everyone still remembers as um, really cool moments? It was my second character I'd ever played. His name is Sal Buckthorn. He's a fawn. And he lived his whole life in the Feywild and, like, crossed over to, like, the Material Plane. And he has, like, no idea what's going on. Like, doesn't understand the customs, the laws, anything. But, like, he's there to have, like, a fun Some. time. Yeah, he loves yeah. it. Yeah. Like, he's having a great time. And, like, everybody else in the party had, like, so much emotional baggage. And he was, like, the really, like, optimistic guy, even <laughs> though he had some baggage himself. And yeah, it, he was a lot of fun. And uh, there was a whole bit where it was the Storm King's Thunder that we were playing through. And there's a scene where you go in and it's meant to be this whole fight against fire giants and a couple of like the cloud giants and um, all of that. And my character, he had plus 12, I think, at that point in Persuasion because he was a bard, very charismatic. He was a Valor bard. It was the first time I played that. And it was a lot of fun. and. Everyone was like preparing for a fight and I was like, no, let my character speak. <laughs> He's going to try and reason with these people. <laughs> and he was the only person in the group that knew Giant. And he kind of had learned from our interactions with past Giants how afraid they were of like their own gods and everything. So like mm. he basically talked them down by saying like, oh, your gods wouldn't want this. And like, do you want to end up like in like this purgatory like kind of thing? And every Giant except for one ended up stepping down. Like, I think I rolled like a nat 20, so it was like a 32 on the roll. <laughs> and, but one of the giants just happened to resist it. And, um, because she was like this character that was like very stoic, set in her ways, we ended up having to fight her to the death for honor. Because she was like, if you can beat me, then I'll allow you to like help the fire clan, basically. And we were like, okay. And so we fought her to like the death in like uh, a duel. And that was just like so cool. Cause like, that was the first time my character did this like really big thing and I like, got to be in the spotlight. Like our DM was good at putting everyone in the spotlight, but like that was like the moment that like shone for me. Like I was like, yes, yeah. this, this is just amazing. Like I really love D D. And then in a FFG Star Wars game that I ran, I had it set during the Clone Wars, and um the rule was Nobody could play a force sensitive. Everyone was playing a clone from a regiment. They went and like had all these bonds with like the young Padawan of like their Jedi general. They really bonded with this kid and it was great. And then the kid and them were sent out on a mission. And then I was like, oh, like one of you, you get a calm call. And they were like, oh, okay, accept. And I was like, the visage of Palpatine appears and says, <laughs> execute order 66 i knew it i knew you were gonna do order 66 and like everyone's faces like dropped <laughs> they were like no they got this padawan child with them this padawan child that had lost their lightsaber literally the session before and they were like oh no like everyone was screaming it was so funny and then i was like okay make rolls to resist your inhibitor chips and everyone was like oh my god <laughs> and like they only had like two light side die left and there were four clone characters and they were like okay like who of us is gonna get to use the light side dice to succeed this check <laughs> and 
and then like two of them managed and like protected the Padawan, but had to kill the other two. And like, yeah, it was just funny because I was sat there as the GM laughing, like trying to take it seriously because everyone was just screaming. <laughs> it was absolute <laughs> havoc. It was amazing. <laughs> it's very dark, dramatic yeah. moment and everyone's just... <laughs> <laughs> everyone was just like yelling. That. Yeah, it was so good. <laughs> That's so rude. And then afterwards they were like, I can't believe like you've traumatized us. Like <laughs> we trusted you and then you pulled Order 66. <laughs> as the last session and they were like great so like now we're all like miserable two of our friends are dead <laughs> the padawan is like traumatized the other two clones are upset because they killed their friends <laughs> it was wild like and i just remember that being like so much fun yeah that's cool so you mentioned matt mercer chris perkins any other particular dms that you really look up to or have kind of taken parts of their style as your own style just because you enjoy it so much it depends really on on the game um like for star wars for example like the show that jesse cox has on his channel i watched that and like i took inspiration from like the kind of plot twists and things that they did because they did a an order 66 plot twist and i was like that's such a good idea i'm gonna have my last session be that to really mess up the players (laughs) With Matt Mercer, the kind of inspiration I took from him is the yes and catching the curveballs and putting them into the story rather than having them be separate and seen as restrictive. The McElroy brothers as well, like in terms of improv, like how they can really just like start a weird conversation and have like these weirdly named NPCs that were like named as a joke kind of be like these really emotional characters with like full backstory like Barry Blue Jeans like that's extremely funny and the fact that like Garfield is like a shopkeeper in the universe I love that I think that's just really fun and with Chris Perkins I like take the inspiration of using a player's backstory to immerse them into the story that you are telling like have these connections be made so that characters are invested and want to keep the plot going forward rather than seeing multiple branching paths and just arguing amongst themselves which one they want to go to you know you give everyone kind of a reason to be involved and also from his style as well like getting every character to have like that moment to shine like to contribute like setting up whether it's encounters or just like random scenes that are very much tailored not to just like one specific character like every character has something to contribute but just something that like that character could shine in if they wanted to take that chance you know like a barbarian like finding a crack in a wall and then smashing through the wall that kind of thing they're all like big inspirations and just the people i also like follow on twitter as well like there are loads of excellent dms even if i don't necessarily watch the show like i'll read their takes on like twitter threads like this helped me be a better dm (laughs) there are just like so many and getting to see people as well like sharing stories on twitter of like good things that happened in their campaign it's like yeah that's a good idea like i'm going to like steal that put my own twist on it and put it into my game there are people who just like write blogs about like their dming experience too and there are lots of like youtube videos uh the what's channel actually has like a lot of good videos on like how to dm especially the matt mercer one because it really pushes that narrative of you don't have to be doing critical role to play D&D, right? Like, he makes that very clear. It's a trap that a lot of first-time DMs, like a couple of my friends DMing for the first time, kind of fall into. They, you know, they want to make this huge world, and it ends up becoming too much of a burden to kind of keep it all together when you're only just starting out. I'm like, you do realize, like, Matt Mercer, like, built this like whole setting for like years before he even yes. <laughs> like played. And he's been DMing for years too. Yeah. And it's why I say like, you know, you can take inspiration from these DMs, but like don't try to be them. Be your own DM. You bring something to the table that those other DMs won't, whether it's because you do like really good goblin voices or you're really good at carrying a small thread and then having it brought up later as like this big plot twist. Or whether you just change a setting like Waterdeep and reflavor it a different way, a way that you want to see it and have it be. 
I had Jarlax or Bainry in my game because I was like, oh, in fifth edition, like his clothes are kind of boring. I'm bringing back the crop top and the rainbow cape that he has, like, (laughs) you know, very flamboyant, over the top and had a fun time being really campy. Like he's a really fun, campy, like antagonist. And, you know, taking inspiration from uh, the D&D novels too, like, especially when it comes to characters who are antagonists, like the I Strad novels are brilliant. I mean, so are like all the the Ravenloft novels, really. And the Drizzt novels, especially Mm. when Jarlaxle turns up for the first time, you know, and he's got like these clanky spurs on his high heel boots. And (laughs) I love him. Like the second he arrives, you're like, I love this man immediately. He's a great character. The fun thing is that you can take that idea and then change it, put a twist on it. Whether you're like mocking a certain genre or you're wanting to rewrite a certain genre, there's a lot there and you can bring your own voice to it, which is going to be different from somebody else's voice to it. Honestly, that's the best way to do it is to just pick a few things that you like and then keep looking for more inspiration. So awesome. And now a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. Let's start off with Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh look for the new year? Head on over to gemmedfirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. Listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at gemmedfirefly.com now. And also, Delve Candles. At Delve Candle Company, we make immersive candles with custom blended scents that will add atmosphere and ambiance to your next session. Our scents evoke settings or moods commonly encountered by adventuring parties, and our candles are 100% soy wax for a clean, burning experience. Visit our website at www.delvecandles.com. That's D-E-L-V-E-C-A-N-D-L-E-S.com. And subscribe to our mailing list for 10% off your next purchase. Adventure awaits to those who delve. Just a note from Derek here. I've used Delve Candles. Uh, Recently, I bought the bag of scent holding pack, which had seven or eight different scents for me to try so uh, i got to kind of test each one of them and and i'm using kind of one for each of my sessions just to see how it works so yeah big fan of dove candles go check them out and now let's get back to the show so now we're going to transition to your work specifically uh and the first part being obviously uh you're best known as the creator of the combat wheelchair the needlessly controversial combat wheelchair might i add i don't want to dig into that too much though i want to talk about (laughs) the good stuff where did you come up with the idea and what was the creation and play testing process like and i know you're you're on version 4.0 right now so yeah you can talk us through like the the different updates you've made as well it kind of came up in a game i was playing and most of the people in it, I think if not all, were wheelchair users, ambulatory mm-hmm. or full-time. One of the players was like, it'd be just really cool if you could just play a character in a wheelchair, but like a wheelchair that's actually designed to withstand combat rather than just like, you know, a crappy little hospital chair, which is the right. only thing that D&D had at that point. I was like, oh yeah, like that would be pretty cool. And I was like, yeah, I can think of like three actions it could take, like ram, crush, and tire strike. Mm-hmm which are still in in the core rules today. And that was like the first pretty much iteration of it. Like in personal games, it was just three actions that you could take. And then as we played, it was like, okay, what about stairs? What about climbing? What about fighting styles? Things like that. And it's things that I've learned from researching on Paralympic sports, things like mm. murder ball, which is so intense, um, wheelchair archery, wheelchair fencing. Um, there's even wheelchair swimming and climbing, like rock climbing, which is just incredible to see like the upper core strength that you need <laughs> to be able to pull, you know, yourself and a chair up is impressive. It kind of came about in my last year of university. So like I was studying for finals and writing my papers and everything. And that idea struck you, oh no. (laughs) And then like in the back of like my lecture notebook, I had like all these notes on like things that I'd learned and was using 
the university library to go into like the sections that weren't relevant to my course in any way, but took books out anyway. Because uh-huh. the thing is with doing a literature and an English degree is like the library doesn't seem to care what you take out because the course is so vast, like you might end up in a weird department. So like I would just go in and like take loads of books like on Paralympics and different types of sports and then researched online like what these chairs were actually like and how they were built and all the different designs and the weight, the width of them, everything. With the different updates, it's all been about playtesting and people pointing out, oh, there's this rule or fifth edition's like, oh, these new rules have been updated. Like we've changed a few things and I'm like, now I've got to go like, change everything again and make sure it all fits. The original like combat wheelchair was literally just those three actions. And then the second version was the actions and how the chair was built and traversing stairs. The next version was like what to do if you fall in water, swimming with the chair, climbing with the chair. Wait, no, climbing is in version four. Sorry, that's because I'm working on version four at the minute. Lots of crossover. <laughs> And then I was like, well, I'm going to make combat wheelchair subclasses. And they're not just wheelchair exclusive. Anybody can take these subclasses, able-bodied or not. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to make them. And then I did like the 12 core classes and all their subclasses underneath. Then Matt Mercer was like, yeah, you you can use the Blood Hunter because I asked. I was like, is it okay um, if I put it in? Because, you know, I'm not making any profit off the chair, so... Right, free a free resource, and as it's not official content, you know, I'm sure it, yeah. it made sense yeah. to make sure he was okay with it too. Yeah. So I made a blood hunter that used chronic pain. Um, the order of the siphonic uses chronic pain to like basically people who don't have chronic pain like will experience it and it will cause damage and be very distracting in combat. And then I made my own class with four subclasses. I think it has now which is the Wafsa, which was literally just me writing a love letter to the Witcher through D&D. And based on the kind of genetics that you got, like mutations that you got, you get a different subclass. So like there is Lichdom, which is you become a pseudo-lich basically. And then there's the school, which is basically like about ghosts and you can face through walls and become incorporeal and communicate with ghosts. A lot of necrotic damage kind of thing. Then there's one that's pretty much just like a standard Witcher, where you get like a mixed bag of mutations. So like you get things like giant strength, which allows you to like lift way more weight than you normally can. You can also pick up and throw people and cause damage by throwing them a certain amount of feet. You get claws that allow you to sink your fingers into rock surfaces and climb up walls and things like that. And like you get like superior kind of smell and sight and things and then like in the core class itself as you level up you get a new mutation so like there's a fun one one of my favorite ones is the vampire mutation which is as long as you have one hit point still you can regenerate five hit points per round but uh you can't do it when you're standing in running water because Mm. vampires can't and then there's a harpy one as well which makes you have advantage on spells with like effects Um, that you have to roll for and playing around with different things like that there's a werewolf one which is like you get like proficiency and like perception and smell taste um and you can track by scent alone you have to roll though if you lose track of the scent to see if you can pick it up again and uh like griffin eyes that give you like very superior vision like you can basically like focus in i also added in like 3.0.1 to that subclass Different blade oils, which are literally like, I just was like, the Witcher has blade oils. Now this subclass can have <laughs> blade oils. And you know, depending on what blade oil you put on your sword, you get like a certain amount of extra damage to certain creature types. But you have to like yeah. brew them every day kind of thing and keep on top of them. And, you know, make sure you have all the ingredients and parts to make them. So, yeah, getting to play around with that. It's something that D&D hasn't done, like, you know, classes that allow you to incorporate parts of monsters that traditionally, you know, you would go out fighting. I think it's a fun concept to fight monsters by becoming part monster yourself, which is just something that's always fascinated me about The Witcher as well, um, as a big fan of it. So yeah, getting to do that, and then all these subclasses came out, and then I also 
commissioned artists out of my own money and had them all make artwork for the, the combat wheelchair. And it wasn't just characters in wheelchairs, there were different disabilities, characters with canes, characters who are blind, characters with service animals, things like that. Like the wizard school of bonds, which is basically, you have a familiar, but the familiar kind of levels up with you and you gain stuff from them and they gain stuff from you. One of the fun traits of it is uh, your familiar also becomes a spell book. Like it knows all your spells for you. So you don't have to carry up a spell book around anymore. That's really cool. Like a shared yeah, memory um, kind of thing. Yeah. And you can train them to be service animals, which is just like a little additional kind of ruling. Like they'll follow orders from you and they'll also follow orders from uh, your friends if you train it to. Uh-huh. So you can tell it to like do certain things. Like even if it's something as small as open the door or like turn off the light or fetch something for you, they can do that as like part of an action. And yeah, it was really fun to like, play around with these concepts and incorporate disability into it and how it would work and how it would affect certain rules. And it's just been a blast. Like, And getting to write the upgrades catalog, uh, which I'm currently updating in version 4, there's like 20 new upgrades coming in version 4. And some of them allow you to make the wheelchair become magnetic so you can pull all of the enemy's weapons towards you and then fire them back out um, like ammunition. That's pretty cool. Yeah, just loads of fun things like that. And it's been great, like just adding stuff and just going kind of wild with it. And yeah, it's still like in the the kind of playtest version. Everything's still being checked to make sure it's balanced (laughs) or at least as balanced as it can be with the current rulings. And it's just been a load of fun. Like I made a tweet about it the other day where I was like, I really don't regret ever making the combat wheelchair. It's something that like, it's always fun to come back to. Because I'm like, oh, I have this really fun new idea and I know other people are going to enjoy it and it's going to be fun. One of the new upgrades that recently upset people on the internet was they found out that one of the upgrades allows you to negate the effects of the heat metal spell on the chair as long as your chair is made of metal. And it's only something that you can do once per day. It's limited. It kind of works like arcane absorption. And people were like, oh, but like, I want to do that. Like, I can't cast heat metal on the chair anymore. That's not fair. And I was like, it's kind of weird, though, that like you want to do it to a person's wheelchair. Why not do it to the armor that they're wearing or the weapon that they're holding in their hand? It says something about you that that's upset you. <laughs> the you know? odds that any of these people are actually <laughs> playing in a game where there's someone using a combat yeah. wheelchair, I feel like is very yeah. slim anyway. So yeah. People just find reasons to be mad. Heat metal has a con <laughs> save anyway. Like Everyone can resist it. What are you yes. worried about? I'll just sit there and quit and I'll be like, that's just a very strange take, but okay. I'm sure you have seen the worst of the worst the internet has to offer. Those subclasses sound really cool. The classes and subclasses, a lot of variation in there, a lot of creative ideas that I would have never thought of. I was picturing you were talking about like the harpy and the wolf and stuff. I was like, oh yeah, those would make really cool witcher pendants, right? Like the the one that you wear if it's your kind of subclass thing. So that's awesome. The chair has shown up in all sorts of different places. Uh, you've got a character in Idle Champions, that's, and it's your character. Um, yeah. Critical Role had an appearance of someone using it. Hero Forge even offers, like, you can put your mini in a combat wheelchair now. <laughs> what is it like to see these crazy ripple effect of something that you um, thought, hey, this would be a good idea, and now it's just kind of all over the place? You know, what's that like? Every time people ask, I'm just like, it's wild, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. how to explain it. Like, because it all kind of really kicked off, I would say, when I put it online and I was like, yeah, a few people will, I'm sure, like it and it will matter to them. And that's what I care about. I'm not posting it to, like, you know, get clout or whatever. And then Matt Mercer retweeted it and was like, this is a really fun concept. Like, this is very cool. And I was like, okay, thank you, Matt Mercer. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) kind of shocked and then literally i think it was like a a day later or something he followed me back on twitter and i was like you do you okay like thank you for following me that's kind of surprising Mm -hmm. then he messaged and was like hey we want to put a character who uses a wheelchair using your rule set in critical role and i was like okay um (laughs) you know kind of what are you gonna say now yeah yeah i literally sat there with a message open for like 30 minutes like what do i say to that other than like scream um (laughs) you know yeah just like like, yeah Yeah. there's like a panicked (laughs) scream but yeah it was really touching that he wanted to do that and it kind of 
had this big knock-on effect of helping to normalize the combat wheelchair. I think a lot of people who had reservations about it realized that it really isn't overpowered at all. It's designed Uh to adapt to the person that's using it. And I think that kind of throws people off because they're like, oh, there's all these upgrades. Yes, but you can only have three of them and you can only have certain ones because you can't have certain upgrades while you have others on because there's no room on the chair. Like it's balanced. (laughs) And getting to see people realize, oh, it's kind of more tailored to the user, which is what it's always meant to be about because I wanted to replicate that that is very much a real thing for wheelchair users you know we decorate them and change pieces of them to make them more comfortable and suited to what we do so yeah getting to see the kind of knock-on effect then idol champions reached out and were like hey we'd like to put a wheelchair using character in. do you happen to have a character or would you like to make one with us and I did happen to have a character, but I'd only played him a little bit in Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And that was right. Talon Uren, who appears not only in like the PDF like source material, like he appears in the short fictional writings as well. And then there's the game that he's in. And I've also played him a couple times on people's streams, um, which has been fun. And getting to see him in a game is very surreal. And seeing him animated is very surreal. And I'm like, well, my character is canon in, in a D&D setting. That's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so funny because, like, considering his backstory, like, working for Jarl Axel Bainry and everything, it was just so surreal to have them both on screen next to each other in the group. And they have, like, boons and benefits. Like, if you align yourself with Jarl Axel, which Talon does often, like, all of the evil and chaotic, evil, like, aligned characters also get boons. They get boosted while the heroes kind of get diminished down like lawful good and everything but like yeah jarl axel gets this massive boost because (laughs) they've teamed up basically and getting to see him have you know the traditional rogue-like attacks like there's an animation where like he'll disappear like onto the one side of the screen and then reappear from the shadows to backstab someone which is amazing to see like the fact that he is a rogue and is being portrayed like as a rogue which is great and he had like an area of effect damage item which is scat attacks where he just throws caltrops like all around the ground <laughs> to slow down enemies and to damage them which was yeah. one of his upgrades that's actually on the chair and uh, it's the same with the rim discus as well where he can take it off and throw it like their chakram blades basically they throw them it hits a character and he catches it back like a boomerang which was great. I think that's his special move. Yeah, it's just bizarre, like, seeing your character, you know, like, in a game <laughs> like yeah, that. And I- then other people online are like, yeah, I've added him to my group. And, you know, I bought all of the the bonus items for him and, and everything. And I'm like, I'm just really glad people like him. That's so cool. He's kind of become, like, this big character that I work on in my spare time. And, like, I love him to death and I love his story so much. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Hero Forge as well, when they reached out and were like, yeah, we're making wheelchair options for the minis. Um, this is like what we have so far. And I, I joined a couple of calls with them and helped them like kind of navigate how the chair should be set. Even just at small details, like having the ability to slant the wheels so it is more like an actual sports chair that can withstand right. high impact and getting to change aspects of the frame the fact that you can decorate it any color you want and add like studs and spikes and daggers on the wheels and things like that. It was a lot of fun. And the fact that then I went and made my own character Talon on it and I ordered him and got him from Hero Forge. And yeah, he's just like a really cool little mini to have. Like it's my character. He's like doing a little wheelie in his chair and I love him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's so much fun and you know like they had the option as well that like you can adjust uh, extra appendages like tails and things and wings so that they fit in the chair properly there's also it's so minor but the option to remove the push handles and put them on and change them different designs for them different fabrics that you can have your chair made out of and that you can even place like your familiar on your chair and things like that yeah, it's just been really wild and like he's a prized possession on my shelf. <laughs> like I have him next to the the other miniatures that Strata made. They now have one for like every every class now for D&D and each one's like a different ancestry. So you get to see like how the different like body shapes and sizes and extra appendages like all fit in the chair. It was never something I expected to take off in the way that it did. 
and the fact that it did I'm very grateful for it but it's at the same time like it can be like overwhelming and like oh god like yeah you know these people like my work yeah and the fact that it's helped me in getting jobs at actual companies like working for them is really cool it helped launch your designing career uh, and, and a lot of the stuff that you've worked on since. So what are some of the games you've worked on and projects you've worked on that you've helped design to be more inclusive of people with disabilities or, or you know, other, other kinds of parts of inclusivity? So the first one I got to work on was Pathfinder and Starfinder. Mm-hmm. They reached out, Paizo did, and were like, hey, we really love the combat wheelchair. We'd like for you to make the rule set, but for second edition Pathfinder and uh, Starfinder. I was like, yeah, okay, sure thing. And like, basically we worked together and flavored it. And I got to make in the Lost Omens Grand Bazaar book that came out very early this year. It had a shop in it that I made, which is Morhen's Mobility Shop. And it's like this completely accessible shop where he sells all the gear, like prosthetics. And there's even just small things like crutches and canes. Not all of them are made for combat. They're just designed to support a character who may need them even things like joint supports. And then we had like the more magical items. Um, There were like reading rings, which for blind people can put the ring on their finger, run their finger like over the page because Braille doesn't exist in the setting. So like, it's basically like a reinterpretation of Braille where they can run their fingers over it and it will read it as long as it's in their language. And then there's like an upgraded version where it will read it in any language and translate it for you directly into the language that you know. It also has like a, an epithet as well of if you're, you know, deaf and blind, it basically interprets it into images and impressions that you understand so you can understand the meaning of the text. And we also added hearing aids, which very sweetly, a lot of people tagged me on Twitter who were deaf or hard of hearing and were like, I can play a character that has hearing aids. And yeah, that's just great. Like, And the fact that there's a superior hearing aid as well, which allows you to hear really far distances and things like that. And yeah, they were just really happy to see that, you know, representation. And it meant a lot to me that like, I got to include that. And then I've worked on The Witcher. And now I'm gonna have to be careful because NDAs. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, if you say anything that you can't <laughs> yes. say, let me know and we can edit it out. Don't worry. Sure thing. <laughs> but as a big fan, this must be really yeah. cool, huh? Yeah, that was wild. It was literally not that long after I talked about the Comet wheelchair and stuff and I'd already made like a kind of relationship with Artel Sorian via Twitter online and I was in a charity game with Opera Geek, Kelly Butler and with Doug Kako, Garo Rivia, which was bizarre um, <laughs> you know and we did a charity game they were like oh yeah we're doing some openings for writers if you're just interested and want to give it a shot we've let you know and here's where you can submit this email and I was like I'll give it a shot like nothing to lose and they were like oh the adventure only needs to be one or two pages long I submitted a 12 page adventure (laughs) 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 because it kind of got away from me um and it had like different alternate endings and I did like a whole section that was a how to pronounce and the translations of elder speech as well because it involved elves and the scoitel so i was like here's like you know a translation guide and how to speak elvish then they reached out and like hey we, we really liked your one shot and we're making a book you know we're making book of tales which is out now and they were like yeah we want you to write an adventure <laughs> bless them i got probably like the most like intense <laughs> adventure to write it was a lot there um a lot of NPCs, about over 20 different NPCs. All of them have like, you know, different character, like personalities and backstories. And it's a tournament style adventure. So like there are three different rounds and each round like, you know, builds up to like the big confrontation at the end. And then something that's become a bit typical of my (laughs) writing style for The Witcher is one of many alternate endings that can happen depending on what the players choose one of the endings that some of the reviewers and people who played it really liked was if the players get a tpk like a total pie kill which is something that often happens in the witcher setting um because it's it's a very uh intense grimdark setting the gm gets to read out that all these rich people who were like betting on them and treating them like racing horses 
don't even remember their names and they just have like a dinner conversation and the conversation just moves on and yeah like it's like yeah no one will remember you because you didn't win kind of thing and people really like that they were like yeah that feels like very witchery like you know that kind of like bad ending like in the witcher 3 like i mean spoilers for a game that's been out for like seven years now but the bad ending for that where siri dies and Geralt kind of overcome with grief goes to confront the the three witches the three hags and dies doing so it's very heavily implied that he dies he kind of like you know falls to his knees head in his hands and just yeah game over people were like yeah it kind of reminded me of that like you just die and then nobody like remembers you or can find your body and like because the kind of implied ending from the witcher 3 in the bad ending is that Geralt just dies and like nobody knows until somebody goes and looks for him eventually even then they'd just be like ah no witch has ever died in his bed oh well the recent one that came out was the tome of chaos which is a whole big expansion to the witcher spells it's changed all the like the spells from like the original core book kind of updated them so they're they flow easier in combat and do more interesting things and you know we got approval from cdpr who are like hey these are like spells and stuff that we want to imply or use at some point in whether it's you know the throne breaker game or any kind of dlcs or future games that they put out we saw the teaser for the links uh school on the the website not that long ago which was pretty bizarre to see i was like not expecting anything to come out of the witcher but yeah that was cool and the book term of chaos i wrote the only adventure in it which is a binding clause and the whole premise of that is taking the ableism that is inherent in fairy tales and in the witcher setting where fairy tales literally are history they happened you know Geralt talks about how Cinderella left a glass slipper behind because she got eaten by a monster and like he's like yeah she died because the witcher didn't save her and I was like okay cool (laughs) 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 thanks for that Geralt uh like he tells it to Siri and like Siri's just like traumatized because she's like 10 at the time (laughs) and he just says it so casually getting to take that and put a twist on it where the parents who did it um they essentially swap their uh, child who was born with disabilities for a different child because that child is perfect and disabled um and you know it's implied that the other child died and the point of the adventure is that the parents are never portrayed as sympathetic because of what they've done which is usually a trope where like in fairy tales it's like oh whoa the parents they didn't realize what they were getting into and it's like no they knew what they were getting into and they did it anyway because they're selfish because in the story especially the mother she cares more about what everybody else thought of her and she thought that having a disabled child would reflect badly on her which is a mindset that you do see with ableism and getting to do that and for once punish the parents who committed this like awful act with uh, a monster and the monster in it is the Mary Lloyd, which I love. And I made it less like the kind of jovial demon, even though it's a bit weird looking in Celtic Welsh lore. And we put a twist on it where it's, it's a bit more sinister. One of my favorite things is if a player goes outside and tries to look for, basically it stretches its neck out and like looks up to the window and if the player goes outside and follows the neck into the woods and they're like, okay, like, where's the body like of this thing? I'm going to kill it. They find that it's basically just the neck that goes on and on and on, like winding around all these trees in like this really like complicated maze. It causes like scratches through the walls. It can mimic the voices of anybody it's heard or anybody that a player might have known in their life. So like, say for example, a witcher has a long dead lover. Yeah, it's going to use the voice. Yep, yeah. to try and get you to open the door and let it in. It was really fun to like play with that because I love horror as well. And getting to play with the ableism in fairy tales and ableism in horror trope and turn it on its head and show that, you know, you can still have horror and fairy tale like settings and stuff, but you can still address the ableism in those things. Um, and the fact that like when I got approached to write that adventure, and I was like, hey, I have this like, you know, kind of idea because I've been reading a couple of books lately on disability in just uh, the Middle Ages, which is kind of pseudo what the witch is set in. 
and also fairy tales and ableism as well as horror. Would it be okay if I put this in as an element and made it kind of core of the story? The story revolves around this. They were like, oh yeah, like absolutely. Like, but you will have to do it because we trust you completely to do this kind of thing. It was great to just be told, yeah, like do it. We want to take that chance and go for it. Um, and a couple of friends who have brought the book and played the story through were like, yeah, it hit really hard at points where like you kind of sympathize with the parents at first because you don't realize the nature of what they've done. And the second, my friend described it as like taking a brick to the face, <laughs> the second you realize what they've done, <laughs> um, like immediately once they figured out what had happened, they were like, you yeah, know, we, we don't support them at all. And like, even though they beat the monster, they did it for this child's sake because it wasn't the child's fault. But yeah, like getting to see them play through that and that element of the story that I had be at the core wasn't like lost in translation or anything. Like it was very clear and yeah, getting to do that and it was just so much fun. I had like so much fun with it. Like knowing it wasn't lost in translation meant a lot because I worked really, really hard on that um, <laughs> that adventure. Like pulled like all-nighters at some points, like, you know, tearing my hair out with stress trying to get that balance of I want this to be part of the story but not in like a a weird like look at us cookie points kind of way I wanted it to be like very real and genuine and have the players by the end of the game kind of question themselves especially if like initially the players kind of agree with what the parents did and then to have them question themselves like yeah no actually like that's not on (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of thing um and also just getting to play around with disability in the witcher setting was just so much fun like i love doing that getting to to pretty much do anything with the witcher setting and have it be canon at least to the cdpr because everything has to go through them uh side of things is amazing and Though this one is under NDA still, I can vaguely say <laughs> um, that there is something that's going to come out in the future that I worked on with one of the lead writers for the game, a supplement. And, you know, it's going to be like this whole like focus on expanding out into The Witcher and confronting that it is this dangerous world and, you know, how to kind of navigate that. Yeah, like that's as vague as I can be <laughs> without saying what's in it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I also got to work on cyberpunk and uh, help with disability representation in that regard. You know, the fact that like we made murderball canon in um, <laughs> cyberpunk, like the city has its own murderball team <laughs> and its own like Paralympian sports and things like that as well now, which was just really cool to play around with. And my character is in the artwork for the cyber chair as well. So getting to see one of my other characters and something else that I really like was just yeah, super cool. Yeah, wow. What is some of the best advice you've gotten from people? Or what is some really good advice that you've maybe thought up yourself uh, for people who are out there looking to get more into game design? Or for people who are out there running games and want to incorporate more stuff about disability and be more inclusive in their games? Uh, I've seen a take recently on Twitter. Someone was talking about it and then someone else replied and said, but make sure that you're not telling stories that you haven't experienced or, you know, don't don't be putting them in just as tokens. So, yeah, just maybe if, if you could uh, give us advice on on making our games more inclusive, um, but also doing it the right way. To get into game design, just go for it. There's no like, you know, set kind of rules. My experience before I made the combat wheelchair was literally just I made this very like small magic item just for my home game and my players mm. enjoyed it. And then I was like, yes, they've enjoyed it. So now I will take on this massive project during my finals, <laughs> um, you know, and write it while I'm doing work. Maybe don't do that, but there's no um, prerequisite. You don't need to be like super experienced or anything. And the good thing about making, you know, your own stuff is you can go back and revisit it and update it as you get more confident with the rule sets of the games. Like I got more confident with D&D and the combat wheelchair group because of it. I was kind of confident when I first posted it, but like nowhere on the level now where I'm like, oh, I can kind of, you know, list off uh, the range of like certain items and can tell you how much damage they would do and the different effects and things like that. You know, it's something that I eventually like, you know, got more confident, not just through 
I think people also think that you have to like read all the source material. Not necessarily. You know, you can read the kind of core rules, but to experience them through play gives you a good idea of how players will use those rules and how they can be bent. So when you end up making a homebrew item, you're like, okay, like I know that a player might think of this situation. So here's an epithet talking about that. I learned that if a player falls into water while wearing the wheelchair and the wheelchair is exceeding the carrying capacity, that it's going to sink and how to navigate that. And then also putting optional rulings in as I got more confident for people who want to play like more hard games where like items are tracked and like items can break. So like having an optional rule set where the wheelchair can break and what to do if that happens. There's like broken and then there's destroyed beyond repair. So like there are two different ways of playing it. And just like have fun with it. If you've got like a really fun idea and it sounds like bizarre and like it doesn't fit in to D&D, like people tried to argue that a combat wheelchair wouldn't be in, you know, in a universe where submarines exist and there are spaceships and aliens, but okay. Even if you don't think it will fit in, just do it. Like literally nobody's stopping you but yourself. As cheesy as it is, that saying of like, you miss all the shots that you don't take. Also, another thing, you don't have to be good at like maths, like to balance rules out. A lot of the time, like what I do, I'm really bad at math. I kind of put a vague number on it or a vague ruling of how it would work. Play it in game, see what happens. If it's broken, then you can be like, okay, I need to change the amount of damage it does. Or I need to put a clause on it to say that it can't do this. But you kind of just learn as you play. So, you know if you enjoy even just playing D&D and you don't DM very often, you can still make things. And that kind of goes for like every TTRPG really. And then as well with, you know, accessibility and inclusivity, like you said, it's really important to not tell stories that you haven't experienced unless (laughs) it's very tricky. Like pretty much the ground is, you know, let disabled people tell these stories that they want to tell about disability. But, you know, if you're, say, part of a company like Critical Role is to do what Matt Mercer did, reach out to someone who's disabled, say, hey, we want to work on this. We need your opinion, you know, and you can see how the character's going to be before we even put it on air. So, yeah, getting to see that and including their voices in it, if you're in that kind of situation, it's very important that you hire people who are disabled. There are so many of us out there who are happy to give our time to talk about experiences, to make sure that like you're putting your best foot forward and not immediately slapping people with something very stereotypical that causes more damage than good. And if you're really unsure, even if you've done all your research and you're really unsure and you're not able to talk to someone who's disabled about the idea that you've had, don't put it in. Don't do it, (laughs) you know? Especially if it's like you're making a TTRPG from scratch. I get people asking me, but I want to put disability content in, and but I'm not disabled and I can only afford to work on it myself because when you're an independent writer, it's, it's really hard to pay. What I say is like, just leave it out if you can't pay for it because it's better to not have it than ending up putting something in that's going to cause far more harm than you ever intended it to. It's best to not risk it. It's not putting a cap on saying like, you cannot show disabled people in your setting at all. It's just wait until you've got either the experience or somebody who is disabled and you're able to pay them for their time to work on this with you, that then you can start incorporating it. You can always acknowledge it at the beginning of the book saying that you wanted to put disability representation in, but unfortunately cannot afford it at this time to to pay for someone and learn and make sure the rules portray this correctly getting to write that kind of thing in and make it very clear that it's not that you're saying that they can't exist in this setting it's just you as a writer aren't able to handle that material and you feel it would be best left to somebody else um, when the time comes that you can pay for it when it comes to payment especially in the u.s because getting benefits in the u.s if you're disabled is far more restricted i've noticed than what it is in the uk In the UK, you can just be like, here's my official diagnosis, and they will give you an income every month. Understanding that you may not be able to physically pay them with money, or if you can, it has to be like a certain amount, because if it exceeds their income, then they can get their benefits taken away from them. 
which, you know, they need to get medical care and medicines and such. Be aware of that, but you can also at the same time is compensate them in different ways. You know, if it's something like you go on their Amazon wish list and you buy them a few items, you send them gifts. Like I had somebody who at the time when I wasn't officially like doing this job and I couldn't make much money off it due to the kind of situation that I was in. I was like, oh, it's it's fine. And they were like, okay, well, I'll buy you a video game. What's a video game that you've really wanted? I was like, oh, well, I'd like Animal Crossing. And they were like, yeah, okay, well, I'll buy you Animal Crossing, the new one then. <laughs> um, and when that came out, yeah, I, I got gifted that. So even if it's just small things like that is a good way to kind of show your support, even if you physically cannot give them money for their, mm. the work that they've done. You're asking a lot out of a person for their time to talk about experiences that may be like very difficult or tiring for them to talk about. Making sure that you are compensating them for their time and, you know, for the work that they've done. And also acknowledging as well that they worked on it because I've seen some people who don't even like credit the sensitivity readers and consultants that they've had. Like Critical Role does it pretty well. Like they'll, have like a thing in their Twitch chat that says like who helped and like are very clear about it on the wiki and such. And like I only know that because like somebody saw that I was credited on the, the Critical Role Wikipedia, which was just really funny. I didn't realize. Yeah. So like just make sure you have a section that's like, you know, I had a consultant that worked on this. This is their name where you can find them, you know, show them support. Yeah. Credit where credits do kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like you do it for artists and you do it for writers and game designers. You should do it for the people who are there making sure that you aren't putting out damaging content, especially, you know, when they're talking about experiences that are going to be pretty difficult for them to talk about, or at least very tiring because like, you know, they're having to explain themselves again and again. And it can be really hard. Like sometimes I get burnout from that with my job where I'm just like, yay like the fifth person this week I've got to tell the same stuff to you it can be very difficult and also be understanding if you ask them and they say that unfortunately they can't whether it's because they've got no spoons for it they're in a difficult situation right now or they are just far too burnt out to talk about these things like don't kind of get upset by that it's probably nothing to do with you just understand and be respectful of that and just be like oh it's okay Sometimes I get people when I can't do things, if I, especially if I feel I can't handle a certain thing, like blind or hard of hearing representation, where I'm like, I can't do this, but my friends over here can, they might be able to help you. Is you know, you can ask, oh, do you happen to know anybody who also does this kind of work that I could reach out to? And to, yeah, just be very respectful and understand that even though we have these experiences, we don't necessarily owe you our time. It's a difficult thing to talk about. And even though like I do it as a job, like even I find it very tiring sometimes. Just be respectful of boundaries. Understand that these aren't your experiences to tell if you're not disabled. And even if you are disabled and you're looking to get a very niche, like a specific disability experience, like for example, with me, like I've got no idea what it's like to be deaf or blind. So I will pass you on to people who I know work in the industry and be like, they're deaf and blind. They can talk to you about this. Like, I can't promise you, you know, that they'll give you their time, but they will at least hear you out or have some resources for you to look at and make use of the internet. There are a lot of free blogs and resources out there that disabled people write and talk about, and you can understand the experience better through that. And if you happen to use them to make a certain mechanic, if you happen to refer to a certain blog, once again, credit them for that. Even though like you didn't directly ask them for that, you should still just credit them and kind of support their work because even if it was indirectly, they helped you out. Yeah, yeah 100%. Just, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for talking to us today. I have been looking forward to this for a while uh, just because I've been following you for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I just love to hear uh, your ideas and your passion for what you do. And I'm also looking forward to seeing version four of the combat wheelchair come out. I know you've been working on it for a while now and you've got some fun updates and uh, all of the other projects you've got coming to, you know, your journey is only beginning. So it'll be fun <laughs> to see uh, where else it takes you. Yeah, yeah. Who knows where it will take me, but I'm, yeah, just super excited to just get to work on things that I love and knowing that these things matter to people like me. It's just great. Yes. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guests, Dylan and Aram of Kill Every Monster. I do have an ego. And when I run a show now, I don't run that show alone because I have an ego. And so I find a partner that I trust, that I am willing to be vulnerable, that I'm willing, and that and that is very comfortable telling me, F- no, Aram, shut up, you're wrong. Aram, you can't swear on this show, you it's incompetent right, we can cut that out. Boob. Don't worry. I'm sorry. Don't worry. I'm sorry. That's the, that's the reason we edit things. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase. I need someone to basically tell me, you know, you cannot do that, Aram. You you are pushing boundaries. You are not seeing things, you know, or just you're being ridiculous. Just get back down to earth. And I am someone that I can trust. And therefore, I feel a lot safer in this show because Dylan has as much power and responsibility as I do. And also because Dylan will just shut me down. And that works better yeah. for me. For everyone who thinks I'm being unnecessarily mean to Aram. <laughs> This is an important part of the relationship. I need to keep him in check. Absolutely. To hear more about the dynamic between Dylan and Aram, how they got the idea for Kill Every Monster, and some of their best advice for running games, tune in next week.